Broadcasting from the University of British Columbia, this is Cited. I'm Sam Finn. And I'm Gordon Caddick. Today we're playing the second in our three-part series with Hot and Bothered. That's Descent Magazine's climate change podcast. And that means we're joined by one of the hosts of that show, Daniel Aldana Cohen. Hey, Dan. How's it going? Uh, I'm doing great. So excited to be part of this podcast collaboration with Cited. Yeah, it's been fun so far. Um, And for people who missed the first episode, maybe you can let us in on what Hot and Bothered actually is. Uh, Sure. So Hot and Bothered is a podcast about climate politics. Um, We like to say it's a a climate politics podcast for the 99%. The you know basic idea of the podcast is to, on the one hand, reach an audience of progressives and leftists who don't think that much about climate change and want to understand the overlap between the kinds of politics around inequality uh, that they care about and climate change. Uh, and then we're also looking to reach uh, folks who worry most of the time about climate change or about the environment and who have an intuition that inequality plays a huge part of the story but haven't had the chance to put those things together yet. So we're really trying to bring these two conversations together, the kind of long-standing political struggles around around inequality, uh, as well as the issue of climate change. And so it's on, on this show, we want to tell another story about, the, about a kind of um, a, a, a hot political topic that, that doesn't always get talked about in the context of climate change. And that's basically immigration and refugee resettlement politics generally, something the left talks about, something the right talks about, but not always in the context of climate change. And one of the things that's, that's interesting is, so we, we decided, okay, we're going to set out and we're going to find someone and show how, um, find someone in Canada where we're recording this podcast, um, and show how climate change led to, to their displacement and maybe you're not as surprised by this as I am, Dan, but like it was actually it was really challenging to find someone um, who in Canada who who would say like, oh, yeah, environmental factors are a huge part of the reason I left my country. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, you know, the term climate refugee gets thrown thrown around so much, but um, it's really hard to ever identify a single cause and, and especially a single environmental cause for someone moving at least so far. Um, I think it just speaks to this bigger issue that we have which is when, once you realize that kind of like everything is connected, you know, climate change and society, you know, in every way are kind of overlapping, uh, it actually becomes hard to just pull out a single causal thread and say, oh, that's just climate change. Um, and and I, I think in a way, a challenge for us uh, scholars, but also storytellers is to tell that slightly more complex and rich story about the interaction of like climate change, you know, inequality, uh, you know, issues around borders and racism. Um, and put those together in a story that's kind of like adequate to the complexity of the of the world, um, but that also reaches people and makes sense to people uh, in a way that is kind of clear and straightforward. You know, we know today that there are, I think it's 254 million international migrants and refugees uh, around the world. So the voice you're hearing right now is George Benson. He's a graduate student at UBC's School of Community and Regional Planning, and he's also the co-founder of a group called the Climate Migrants and Refugees Project. Basically, he spends all of his time thinking about 
how cities like Vancouver can mitigate and adapt to climate change. We don't know exactly how many of those people have chosen to leave their homes because of flooding, hurricanes, or decrease in uh, agricultural revenues that might cause a laborer to to want to leave home. We have this, let's call it a, a kind of constellation of anecdotes that we navigate around uh, that have caused us to to start to draw some linkages, and we're inferring a lot from the climate science because we can see the impacts. We know that you know temperatures are rising, water is rising, agricultural uh, systems around the world are challenged, and so on. And we're inferring uh, that there's a relationship there. But the big challenge for us is that we don't know to what degree those people are already moving. But the inference that we're making is that that uh, that rise in uh, the number of people moving is increasing. So there's a reason why we don't know how many people actually leave their countries because of climate change. The UN's 1951 Refugee Convention does not include environmental effects as legal grounds for asylum. That means today when you're applying to be a refugee, there's really nowhere on the forms where you can note that you've been displaced because of climate change. Of course, Climate change can still be a part of the reason why people choose to become refugees or why people immigrate, but these people are basically invisible. What's the best forecast um, for what we're likely to see uh, in terms of climate migration over the next several decades? I cannot think of a forecast yet that is inclusive of the sheer number of climate change impacts that we will see there's a potential for about 187 million people to be displaced because of sea level rise by the end of the century. Um, That's a terrifying number, 187 million people. But that's not inclusive of extreme heat. That's not inclusive of water shortages. That's not inclusive of agricultural pattern shifts. That's not inclusive of the decline of traditional industries that can't work in spaces where they have for a long time and are major employers. It's not inclusive of uh, disease vector changes, the mosquito zone. When you start to layer all those pieces together, we realize how incomplete our picture of climate migration um, and climate displacement really is. And so I I wish I had a a more concrete number for you, but I I try and list those factors to show that the, the comprehensiveness of the picture that we need to build is one of the inherent challenges that we face. We know this is a big deal. We're not really sure how big of a deal or how bad it's going to get. But at least what we wanted to do today is tell the story of one climate migrant. To kind of see what it looks like, right? Like, what it, what is it actually experientially like? Oh, my name is Afroza, last name Begum. So I met Afroza in Scarborough. That, that's a suburb of Toronto. And right. we started talking about her life back in the 80s. She lived in Dhaka City. In Bangladesh, That's in Bangladesh, right? And she was a student. When she graduated, she realized that in Dhaka, there were a ton of homeless families. The sea had risen and had eroded the land or destroyed their farmland. Or for one reason or another, um, these kinds of climate impacts uh, made these families move out of their rural villages um, and into the city where they're now homeless. The uh, villages it start, uh, you know, breaking down. Uh, it step by step. Sometime, you know, gradually it happen, and whole village is like vanished. Sometime it happen like suddenly, maybe uh, by one night, by few hours, 
and the family uh, were not prepared to save their thing their, their staff in some ways bangladesh is a good case study in how social class and climate change flow together it's a kind of a window into how rising seas and more and more frequent storms might affect countries like canada and the united states as well in bangladesh it's relatively precarious farmers who face the brunt of rising tides when their land is destroyed, they don't have many options. They flow into cities where some of them work as wage laborers and others end up homeless. So the everyday life is affected. If you watch television, Bangladesh uh, television, you will see every year it is happening, like whole year uh, it is happening somewhere, some part of Bangladesh. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Bangladesh has come to play this huge role in the imaginary of of climate change around the world. Um, And, you know, for the most part, it's for really good reasons, which is that it is a country with a very large population, which is almost uniquely vulnerable to rising sea levels. Um, You know, Scientific American recently reported that just three feet uh, rise in sea level, about a meter, would submerge almost 20 percent of the land mass of the country. Uh, and that could displace over 30 million people. Uh, and is, Dan, is this because it's like it's it, like most of the country is at sea level? Like it's is that why? That's right. It's a it, there's a combination uh, in Bangladesh, but is is the case all around the world um, of of large concentration of population, you know, by the ocean for like longstanding and normal economic reasons has to do with commerce where cities are are located. Uh, and the fact that the country is so much of it is so close to sea level um, and in many ways kind of interspersed with the with the water. Um, so what that means is that uh, just a very small amount of sea level rise can create a huge amount of social displacement. Uh, and that number I cited, you know, three foot rise in sea level. Yeah. You know, most scientists imagine that we could be there easily, uh, you know, just simply halfway through the century. So, with, you know, tens of millions more affected once you get to, to 2100. Um, And we're talking about displacement on a scale that just totally dwarfs, for instance, what we've seen in Syria. I think, um, you know, uh, if you consider in a humanitarian ground, then we have to do something. So Afroza decides to become a social worker. Her job is to work with homeless families in Dhaka City to interview them and to find out how they ended up on the street. We had to take case histories of street children. So like uh, 200, 300 families, they are in similar situation. They find some space and start living. They make a shelter by themselves, maybe with polythene, with like uh, some, uh, t- uh, like plastic plastic bags and on the street also they start living that way when they have no house. It's worth pulling out here for a second to say that Afroza's story or the families that Afroza is meeting, mm-hmm. they're really the archetype of the climate migrant. I think people have this conception of this mass migration of people from one country to another. And kind of like a wave from the global south to the global north. Exactly, and that may become a problem, but primarily, or at least at first, the problem is that people within countries are impacted, their farms are destroyed or their villages are destroyed, and they move from a rural setting or some smaller setting to the big city. That is kind of the first wave of climate migration, and that is what Afroza is seeing. 
Yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, the demographers who study uh, climate-induced migration and other forms of, of migration, I think they sometimes get impatient with this uh, image, as you, as you said, of, of folks kind of flooding across borders or something when really the majority of the displacement uh, caused by climate change um, so far and other kinds of stresses in general, it, it's internal and, and, it, and it's regional. And we could even think, you know, I did a lot of research um, with a bunch of folks at the Superstorm Research Lab in New York uh, after Hurricane Sandy, and you have, you know, people aren't leaving the New York region. They're going from a very flood-prone part of Staten Island um, uh, to maybe New Jersey or to another part of, of New York City. And then in a, in a slightly greater scale, you see, you know, migration within regions, within countries, um, as you're describing in Bangladesh, from, you know, the countryside into the into the cities. And that that is really the bulk of, of migration that, that demographers expect to see, uh, at least for the foreseeable future. I can remember in 1988, it was huge flood. My son, he become sick. And uh, then I had to run to hospital with him. And uh, But uh, the whole city was affected. We have local transportation, but uh, it was not possible uh, to get um, it called rickshaw. So get the rickshaw. So I was, uh, he, he was on my lap and I was walking through the water and water is above my knee so you can uh, you know imagine maybe I walked a mile with uh, with him I see he was look like faint I was checking he is alive or not I shake him because he was so tired I feel helpless because emotionally maybe I was very weak. Um, I, I don't, I believe every mother has the same similar feeling. Um, so Suri ends up okay and, and obviously I knew he was going to be okay because he's been wandering around upstairs the whole time during this interview making dinner. Right. Um, and he, as he hears us talking about him, mm-hmm. he comes down. I, I, of course, don't remember the 98 flood, but the 98 flood, mm-hmm. we had boots. Uh, we, you can go out and buy them in the stores versus I, I don't know what happened in 88, but clearly they didn't have them. <laughs> um, so what was that 98 flood like? To me, it was off. Sc- I, I was off of school, so I didn't. Uh, it was fun. Uh, uh, but obviously, again, and uh, from the eyes of an 11 years old, uh, it was fun because it was just, you know, unlimited free time at home. Um, but uh, I, I guess now that looking back, I, I could see that there are people that were affected. There were people. I remember my mom going to work. It was a you know big difficulty getting on some sort of. Imagine you know going from your home to the subway station. You need to take a canoe and, and through dirty water. That was kind of the scenario for a little bit at the time. Gradually, I planned to immigrate to a good country uh, for my son. That was in my heart. And uh, maybe I focused on good education for my son, so uh, his future will be better. But I can remember uh, underneath of this, like uh, what was pushing to me, so uh, definitely the uh, climate change was the second cause. So she's 
she wants to come to Canada, and like she just said, sort of the second reason she wants to come yeah. is climate change. Only the second reason. Yeah, which which speaks to you know how difficult climate migration or climate migrants are as a category. Like it's really hard to understand the problem because because things don't fall into into neat labels in this in some sense. If Rosa is impacted by climate change, but she's also making these choices for education, and and so we need to kind of be aware of that. Whereas people in, you know, that moved to Dhaka city because their uh, homes were flooded, that's in some sense more obviously a climate migrant. But even then it's, you know, they're internally displaced. So it's not a climate refugee. So it's, so it's hard to count how many climate migrants, climate refugees or whatever you want to call them there are. Yeah. I mean, I was born in Canada, but my mother immigrated from, from Guatemala. And I think most Canadians know immigrants and, that, and know that actually Im- Immigrating, despite what you hear often in these kind of right-wing narratives, immigration is like an incredibly painful thing to do. And people tend to leave their homes only under really extreme duress or if they really feel they need to go somewhere else um, for, for reasons of opportunity. So, it, it, you know, it's interesting to hear that, you know, if Rosa would have gone through this and, and still tried to stay, um, tried to stay in Dhaka until she felt for economic reasons that she was really fundamentally compelled to leave, you know, had to leave to try to safeguard um her son's future. If anything, what that tells us is we need to to really focus on people, you know, where they are, um, and to sort of see the you know migration caused by climate change is a really, really last ditch, last resort effort, um, and we need to think about what the issue posed by the climate, you know, climate refugees is not just how do you accommodate folks when they move, but also how do you make it possible to stay, um, because that's what most people want, and that you know, and rightfully so, I think people as much as possible, have the right to stay home, to stay where they are and, and where they're, what they're used to. And I think the story kind of shows, right, it's not one disaster isn't enough to maybe push someone to, to move. Um, we really do like to stay where we are if we, if we possibly can. Yeah, absolutely. But at this point, Afroza, her mind is made up. She wants to come to Canada. And in order to do that, she has to pass an interview. My consultant, she told me, you, maybe it is one hour, your interview will be, but it can change, uh, it can shift your life, always keep in mind. She told, he told me, my consultant, like your life can be in Canada. So I took it seriously. I would be home before my mom came back from the office. So I always got the mail before she did. So anytime there was a mail stamped from the embassy, I would wait in anticipation. What does it say? I got the letter. <laughs> that I'm accepted as a, a social worker. Uh, and then, so yeah, I was, so you know, you can imagine as a preteen, I was just psyched to, you know, have some sort of news. And it didn't really occur to me, you know, what would it mean to go somewhere? It was just exciting that it's it's something new and interesting and a new place. So this is this is the moment in the story, Gordon, where where I think like emotionally things are kind of interesting, right? Because on the one hand, obviously, this is hugely meaningful for Afroza and Suri that they get this this chance to move to Canada, um, and I you know you don't want to take anything away from that. Um, and on at the, the other- same time, you're you you got to be thinking about those 
rural Bangladeshis that are still, you know, stuck in Dhaka and homeless, right? Especially because uh, Afroza seemed to be doing really important work with them <laughs> before she immigrated, right? I mean, she was a social worker helping them. Um, and it made me wonder kind of generally what the mix is of the kinds of people Canada accepts as immigrants um, and refugees into the country. Um, are we letting in lots of the kind of uh, rural poor um, from Bangladesh? Or are we letting in mostly people who look more like a froza? And so I asked George Benson to explain how it works. Canada has what's usually referred to as one of the most successful uh, and in some cases progressive immigration systems in the world, but that all depends on how you look at it. So we have a points-based system for people who you and I would refer to as immigrants. Um, And in that point system, we have these different categories for language and education. Do you have any family members or a strong network in Canada already? Do you have uh, a job that's, that's here and spoken for that you can sort of uh, show the government that you're going to be well cared for and be contributing to society when you arrive, and um, and, a, and a variety of other features there. So we we add up all your points, and if you cross this threshold, you get in. What are we trying to accomplish with these points? So, from the standpoint of the government of Canada, the point system is designed to bring in the quote unquote highest quality uh, immigrants to Canada that will generate the most value for the country in terms of uh, economic growth, in terms of the cultural milieu that we that we like to think of, the cultural tapestry of Canada, and that will support uh, you know, other numbers of ongoing economic objectives for the country. So right now we have a number of um, sub-programs under something called the Global Skills Strategy that allow for really quick entry for uh, workers in the tech sector who fit certain criteria. So that point system is all geared towards meeting those um, uh, primarily those economic and social objectives. So you were saying before that that whether or not you think Canada is exceptionally good um, with its immigration policy is exceptionally good depends on how you look at it. So I'm wondering if you could spell that out a little mm-hmm. bit. So like, wh- what would proponents of, of the point system say um, works about it? I think the proponents could very rightly point to the success and the sense of belonging um, that most immigrants in Canada achieve. So Compared to other countries, um, Canadian immigrants, whether they're landed immigrants or they become full citizens, tend to report a higher sense of belonging. They tend to achieve fairly high levels of economic and political success. So someone like Minister Hussein, who's our, our Minister of Immigration and Refugees, um, himself being a refugee, anecdotally, that's a very compelling story um, that he's he's been successful in his uh, stay in Canada. The downside to the points-based system, and I've heard this from many migrant advocates and uh, activists in other parts of the world, is that it tends to promote a kind of brain drain. So Canada is able to, because of its reputation and resources and prosperity, intake many of the quote-unquote best and brightest from around the world. In the context of climate change displacement specifically, basically it comes down to we are likely to be intaking the people who are most equipped to leave a dangerous situation. So if you have money and an education and you speak English or French well or both, um, we are going to be able to intake you into this country very, very easily. If you are a poor farmer who's lost everything because of changing agricultural patterns, it's less, it's less uh, 
of a priority, frankly, for our country to intake you, particularly if you don't have any sort of political persecution um, that gives you a designation like a refugee. The, the huge danger that you have in a country like Canada or in a country like the United States, the danger is that we could turn these rich countries into kind of slightly more cosmopolitan enclaves, into a fortress of solitude that is a bit more diverse than it would otherwise have been. Um, the kind of long-term fear that so many of us who think about climate change have is that we're headed toward a world of eco-apartheid, where environmental safety is a huge privilege that only a few get, and everybody else is kind of exposed to the increasingly dangerous elements. I guess I'm wondering about, um, do, you, do you, both of you think about people back home that um, haven't had the same kind of uh, privileges and abilities to, to immigrate? This aspect of it has always struck a chord with me. Um, there, and, and I probably didn't know about any of this until I was probably in my university years. So I watched a documentary that I... Um, uh, that kind of opened my eyes to it because here at home in Toronto, you know, we, we do think about, uh, you know, how, how our, our carbon footprint and, you know, what are my, how much am I using up electricity? Am I, uh, you know, am I recycling properly? Those are built into our day-to-day -day lives. So, you know, I, I pretty much went on living my life thinking oh, I'm doing my part in society. I, I recycle. I don't, you know, um, use i try to use the smaller car when i can i t try to take the transit when i when i can get to it get there by by transit so uh at the same time i i watched a documentary i believe the documentary's name was called who cares if bangladesh drowns mm -hmm. and i had no idea until that um but that there there was such a thing i mean I, you've I've, again maybe it was because i was uh, you know i was i was a child preteen uh so you you don't really think that deeply about you know what's happening in a country of 150 million um but i'm glad that i did see that documentary because you know i was able to connect a couple of dots you know this water level rising and um you know villages being eroded away by by the river changing course have always existed have, over time in that region. So it's not like, you know, it didn't rain in Bangladesh in 30, 30 or 40 years ago. The challenge and the difference is it's happening more and more. Mm -hmm. It's happening more often. It's happening with uh, more rigor and, and, and more devastation. Sori thinks about this stuff a lot now. He actually organized a disaster relief concert during university. But... As we were talking, he said that he started out a little hesitant to talk to us for this program. When our producer Josh reached out to him, he thought he wasn't the right person to talk about this stuff. I told Josh, Josh, if you want to get the real good stuff, the story where people that have actually lost their homes, we're not the people to ask. My mom's not the per My mom is has seen it happen to others. She would have serviced that as a frontline worker, those those individuals, but she would have never experienced it herself. Uh, the fact that she came here means that she's university educated, uh, means that she has the means to even buy a plane ticket. Um, the, the poor that I'm referring to, they live in tents made by plastic tarps, right? They can't 
they don't even probably know there's a country called Canada that allows you to go there. Had I not been in university watching that documentary randomly, I would have never thought of these. Mm -hmm. And I would have just gone on with my life. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're totally right about uh, what you just said about how, you know, talking about that with Josh and how you're not really the archetype of the, the, the people that are suffering the most. Like you're kind your family is in a way lucky. Is that, is that fair? They're privileged. Yeah. Right. I mean, luck would be, you know, if my family's, uh, you know, survived, uh, uh, you know, some sort of a natural disaster, disaster where this is more like they have the means to say, even if they get, they don't live in the villages, they're urban people, they're urban people with good jobs. My, you know, so, and, and, Privilege, unfortunately, in that country comes through sometimes generations, sometimes through industriousness. But um, if you're privileged, you go to university, you, you can pretty much get by. Uh, you, can, you should be okay in theory. Uh, but again, the country is really, uh, uh, the population is really big over there. And um, a vast majority of people don't have the access. How does that make you feel, being being the privileged in the face of that kind of suffering? Uh, it's uncomfortable at times. Um, and partially is because maybe if I grew up there, I would be immune to that feeling. I would just, again, go on living my life with the privilege with, without ever thinking about it because I would just, I would be normalized in that environment. But I'm not normalized in that environment. I grew up here. So for me, looking back, it, you know, yeah, I do question it, and it, it does make me feel uncomfortable. So, Gordon, we've been on this journey with Suri and Froza for a while now. And uh, is the moral of the story we're getting at here that um, they should never have been let into Canada? No, obviously not. I mean... Canada benefits a lot from having them here and they benefit from being here. I think the point why we're trying to complicate a little bit is to suggest, you know, maybe Canada should let in a wider range of people, right? They should take more responsibility for being part of the global emissions that's causing these disruptions in places like Bangladesh. They should be more inviting to those uh, climate refugees. Right. And I guess, like, as long as we don't really have um, a legal framework for accepting refugees who are fleeing non-political um, turmoil, like like cli just climate-based stuff, we could, in our immigration system, seek a kind of wider economic range of people. So we we take in some of the people who who are the kind of people that Afroza would work with back in in Dhaka City. And then, you know, on top of that, it's it's sort of the obvious thing, but, like, just get at the root cause of the problem. Like, stop emitting. Yeah, don't uh, don't burn up all the fossil fuels yeah. that and we it, have sitting And here. if you are going to, at the very least, like, I don't know, like, sp spend some money to help places like Bangladesh come up with kinds of global governance schemes where developing nations, uh, where developed nations can do more to help the developing nations. Well, look, I think that the the fundamental challenge of the 21st century is climate change. And, and that's what we're, of course, what we're talking about today. And the real like social and psychological challenge that I think underlies um, confronting climate change is this issue of 
can you open your heart and have a feeling of solidarity and togetherness with people from all around the world, including people you haven't met yet, and feel that you're in this together and not to just try to fortify your own little enclave uh, and hope for the best within your own little fortified enclave. I mean, that that is the fundamental thing is that we have to get along together and be together in this world, which is becoming much more dangerous. And if we're doing that and if we're getting along and we're being together, we can then be very aggressive in doing things like slashing carbon emissions and building a different kind of, of lifestyle, which is low carbon and which is fun and, and which is just. Um, I think if you start from that premise, you then have to say, okay, when it comes to immigration, when it comes to refugees, what is the most open-hearted policy we can possibly manage? And I don't think that um, only trying to have the most educated and prosperous immigrants come into rich countries is the way that you express that kind of solidarity and that kind of openness. To me, selecting only for the most prosperous, the best prepared immigrants to come into the rich countries, whether it's the US or Canada, uh, or somewhere in Europe or so on, I mean, that's really exacerbating the problem, which is a divide between a minority of people who are protected by rich institutions and a majority who are kind of excluded and left out uh, in the cold or left out in the water on their own. Um, so again, we have to start with this need for solidarity and togetherness and kind of work out from there. And we're going to leave it there. You can find links to all of our guests' work at citedpodcast.com. If you want to send us some feedback, you can email us at cited.podcast at ubc.ca. Special thanks to our friends at Descent Magazine and the podcast Hot and Bothered for partnering on today's show. You can find Hot and Bothered at descentmagazine.org. Special thanks as well to the Pacific Institute for Climate Solutions for their support and partnership on today's show. We podcast the show every Thursday. Subscribe on iTunes to make sure you never miss an episode. And while you're there, please leave us a rating and a review to help more people find Cited. You can also share the podcast, of course, on Facebook and Twitter and follow us at Cited Podcast. Shout out to our listeners on Terrestrial Radio, CITR in Vancouver, CIVL in Abbotsford, CJSF in Burnaby, CKDU in Halifax, and WVBR in Ithaca, New York. If you live somewhere else, tell your campus or community station that they can take our show and play it for free. Thanks as always to the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council for funding Cited, and thank you to the world-class Michael Smith Laboratories, home to 250 researchers and one podcast. Cited is going to go on a short break over the next few weeks. As uh, many of you know by now, we always have to juggle making this show with raising the money we need to make this show, uh, and we're going to be spending the next few weeks regrouping, figuring out a long-term strategy to keep the show alive, and also spending some time with our friends and family over the holidays. We'll be back soon enough with more episodes about climate change, criminal justice, social inequality, all the stuff that you count on Cited to give you. For Gordon Kaddick, Josh GD, Alexander Kim, and everybody here at Cited, I'm Sam Fenn. Happy holidays. Thanks for listening. <laughs>